The rest of us can turn to Revelation chapter 2 with us this morning. Revelation chapter 2. And I tell you, I appreciate just being able to be here at College Heights because it's just a joy to be able to speak and preach and teach to just my home, my family. Just Thursday, I preached at the state convention and And I I enjoy preaching just wherever God lets me and wherever God calls me. But there's something different about preaching to just the church that God has allowed me to serve and be a part of. And I'm so thankful because honestly, man, it's it's freedom here to preach the word. I've been blessed since I've been here just to be able to preach whatever God puts on my heart. And and most of the time it's received very well. And this passage of scripture we're going to look at this morning is is not the easiest passage of scripture if we want to take it seriously. It's not an easy call for us as followers of Jesus Christ or for those that don't know Jesus at all. I mean, this is a passage of Scripture that really, if you, if you want to be serious about it, you're required to let God search your heart. If you want to be kind of indifferent and cold, then you can say this passage doesn't really apply to me and you can go on about your business hiding your head in the sand at some level and missing the work that God wants to do in your life. So even before we get ready to to look at this passage, I just want to encourage you to really open your heart this morning to Jesus Christ, to really let Him speak to you, even in the areas maybe you don't want to hear. So, Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not. And you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you that you have left your first love. Therefore remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. Or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I am so grateful for it. I'm grateful, Lord, that it's truth. And because it's truth, it speaks to our hearts. Because it's true, Lord, you can use it to accomplish the desperate work that needs to be done in our lives. And Lord, there's some work that needs to be done today. There are, there are people here today that don't know you as their Savior. Your Word tells us that they are separate from you, without you in this world, and that they've already been condemned because they've rejected Jesus Christ. Father, that's a horrible thing to hear from your word, and yet, because of sin in our lives, we are not acceptable to you apart from Christ. So I pray for them that they'd be saved today. There's work to be done in believers' lives because we live in a nation and in a place where the world calls to us at unprecedented levels, Lord. Uh, It's hard to love you when the world is so attractive to us. And I ask, Lord God, that you would show the world to be what it really is, empty and without any kind of 
joy and happiness apart from you. And I pray that you draw us back to you. Father, I just pray you do a mighty work this morning, and I thank you that you will. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Pretty crazy passage of Scripture, as I've mentioned, and and one that is fairly simple. It's not hard to understand. I mean, these are letters that are written to seven churches in Asia. Their author is Jesus Christ himself. Chapter 1 introduces us to Jesus in marvelous ways, and his glory is so powerful that the Apostle John sees him and falls at his feet as though a dead man. Now that's impressive because John describes himself in his gospel as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He even says that at the Last Supper, he is the one reclining on Jesus' breast. In other words, as they lay at the table, John is resting on Jesus. In other words, he has an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. I mean, if you're going to come lay on me, I better know you. (laughs) Matter of fact, I better know you a lot better than I know most of you. (laughs) Let's just put it that way. If you're going to come hang out with me and we're going to sit arm in arm as buds, um, (laughs) I don't know what it's going to take, but we're going to know each other well, right? That really has one reservation, and that's for Beth. But I'm telling you, John, man, he knew Jesus. And yet, when he saw the resurrected Savior in his glory, as Christ revealed himself to John in chapter 1, John trembled in his presence to the place where he fell in worship in a a posture that resembled a dead man because of the overwhelming power of Christ. And so that's the Savior, that's the Jesus that's writing this letter. And he says to the believers in Ephesus, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Now he identified the stars as the seven angels of the church and You can either take that as literal angels or you can take that as the seven pastors of the churches. I happen to believe it's pastors. I don't know how you write a letter to an angel, but I certainly know how you can write a letter to a pastor. So that's why I hold to that. But regardless of what you hold to, the truth is is that Jesus is saying, I hold the leadership of the church in my hand. I'm the one that oversees the leaders. I'm the one that controls the leaders. I'm the one that knows the leaders. I'm the one that empowers the leaders. I'm the one that has the authority in the church, not the leaders of the church. I'm the leader of the church, right? And he said that throughout. He is the head of the body. We are the body. We do whatever the head says. So he says, I'm the authority in the church. And I'm also the one that walks among the seven golden lampstands that he identifies in chapter 1 as being the seven churches. And literally what he's saying is, man, I am the one that is active in your church. I'm the one that knows your church. I know where you've been. I know what you've been doing. I see everything about you. I am the one that has the power to tell you what I'm about to say. And honestly, Jesus didn't do that just so he could exalt himself. He's already exalted Savior. He's telling us that, because in chapter 7, it's what the Spirit says to the church as. In other words, it's not just the churches back then, it's all churches. What Jesus is saying to us is that he's going to speak to us, and he's going to expect us to listen to him as the Sovereign One, as the Lord, who has the right to tell us these things, and he's expecting us to respond to him. Not to what we think, or not to what we want, or not to what we perceive, but to respond to him. And then he begins his letter by saying, I know your deeds. Now, again, that's kind of an encouraging thing, and that's kind of a scary thing. Is it not? I mean, what these deeds literally means is the spiritual walk, or the relationship that we have with Jesus Christ as believers. 
He says, I know your deeds. And literally, as you read through these seven letters in, in Revelation 2 and 3, you know that he knows our good deeds, and you know that he knows our bad deeds. He knows our relationship with him. And honestly, at some levels, that's good, right? Because when you're serving and you wonder if anybody has noticed, you ever done that? I'm out here cleaning the church today and there's nobody around. Does anybody even care that I'm serving my Lord? I'm out here praying for somebody and it doesn't seem like anybody even cares. Does anybody know that I'm giving my life for Jesus? Or whatever it might be. A missionary on a field where he has no communication with anybody. You pick it. Aren't you glad to know that God knows when your hearts are right, when you're serving Him, what you're going through, where you're hurt, He knows. And I'm awful thankful for that, not just for me, but for you. Because as your pastor, I don't know. Matter of fact, I would be overwhelmed if I had to know all the things that God needs to know about us, right? But there's the other side of that that says He knows all of our struggles. Which is terrifying in one sense because we don't ever pull the wool over God's eyes. You can certainly, you can fool me. And you can fool one another. You can really look good on the outside and you can be absolutely wrong on the inside and God knows. But the other sweet thing about Him knowing our struggles is that He's the one that can lead us out of them, right? And we'll see that in just a minute. But then He says, not only do I know your deeds, but He says, I know your toil. This word means hard work. The Apostle Paul used it referring to his own physical labor. In 1 Thessalonians 2.9 he says, For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship... How working night and day, so not as to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. The Apostle Paul says, man, we have been laboring and struggling with hardship day and night. And that's what Jesus is saying to this church. I know your toil. I know your labor. I know how hard you work for me. I haven't missed that. Man, I've seen this extensive giving, this extensive going, how you've fought through and persevered and overcome and struggled to be what I've called you to be. How awesome is that, that God would say that about His church? And then He says, I know your perseverance. The word perseverance speaks of the ability to remain faithful in the face of great trial. Which is an incredible insight into the church at Ephesus. And this was true. These churches were under great trials. Man, at this time when Christ wrote this letter to the church at Ephesus, man, Christians were dying. They were dying from the Roman government. They were dying from Jews. They were dying because they were persecuted and hated by seemingly everybody in their society in this Roman culture. And he says, I know your perseverance to remain faithful in the face of great trials. And this sounds like a pretty good church, doesn't it? They obviously work hard and Christ knows it. They obviously have overcome great trials and stood fast for Jesus Christ even when they could have been tempted to give up. But he even goes on and says, and that you put to test, or excuse me, and that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. Jesus says, man, obviously there are wolves that have come into the church in sheep's clothing, and they are at the very nature evil that you cannot endure or that you cannot tolerate or that you cannot stand. Literally, these false teachers repulse you is what this word means. You guys hate the fact that there would be false teachers in your in your church, in my church. He says, not only do you hate them and cannot endure them or cannot 
cannot allow them in your presence, but you test them. I mean, I think it's awesome that this church would be a church that would go, you know what, you claim to be something, but let's find out if you are a true follower of Jesus Christ. Let's find out if what you're teaching is true or not. Because you know what, we're not going to let just any old buddy come in here and speak any old thing they want to. Because there's a whole bunch of people that speak lies on a regular basis. Matter of fact, I remember one time at my last church, every now and then you get caught off guard. I mean, I was getting ready to preach one morning, and this woman had come to church a couple of times. She was a mother of, of some people that had been coming. And I didn't know her very well, but I stood up to preach, and she stood, stands up kind of at the back, and she says, can I share my testimony? Well, I promise I'll never say yes again at that moment. You'll have to come tell me your testimony, and then I'll say yes if you ever want to. Because at that moment, I said, well, you put me on the spot. So, okay. That's not what I said, but that's what I was thinking. Well, first of all, it starts out okay until she starts to break into criticizing every person or everything about our church and about the Lord. And I had to stop her, literally, say, thank you, sit down. And she kept talking, thank you, sit down. And she finally I was like, don't make me come down there. No, I didn't say that. <laughs> But I wanted to, you know. Um, I mean, it's crazy sometimes the fact that, you know, we just think that if somebody has a sincere heart, that they're surely going to be speaking truth. And you know what? That's not true. And here's a church that had some insight into the need to remain faithful to the Word of God. Insight into the importance of the Word of God. Because the Word of God gives life, but anything that would contradict that Word would bring great destruction. And Jesus Himself says to them, Man, I know that you cannot endure evil teachers. I know that you have put them to test and you have found them to be false. Man, what a great commendation from the Savior. Matter of fact, what He says about them here says to us that this is an outwardly awesome church. Because He goes on to say in verse 3, And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. Man, he says, I see that perseverance and the endurance that you have is because of me. You're not enduring just to survive for your own self. You're not overcoming just for your own benefit. You're standing for my name's sake. Man, that's impressive. And you've not grown weary. In other words, you've done this for a long time. And if Jesus would come and stand with us today and say that about College Heights, man, I would be like, woohoo! That's awesome! I mean, I'm not kidding. That's a testimony for a church. These guys outwardly were faithful and true. These guys outwardly stood against the evil in the world. These guys gave themselves at deep levels. This was outwardly a really awesome church. But the crazy thing about Jesus is, as he, he doesn't allow us to just look at the surface, right? I mean, when God was choosing the next king of Israel after Saul had been rejected by God, David sent Samuel to the family of Jesse in Bethlehem. And he said to Samuel, Bring Jesse's sons before you 
And I'll show you the one that will be the next king. And he brings in the oldest, and he's this big stud guy, handsome and strong. And God's like, nope, sorry, I'm not into studs. That's not what he said, it's my paraphrase. But uh, that's kind of what he said. And all the sons come through, and they're all impressive. But God doesn't choose any of them. And so David says, or, or Samuel says to Jesse, don't you have any other sons? And Jesse says, well, yeah, there's David. He's the shepherd boy. He's out tending the sheep. He's just young. And, you know, he's not really qualified. And Samuel says, I will not sit down until he stands before me. God sent me to choose the king. And sure enough, you know what it is, right? David comes in and God says, that's the man. That's the boy. And, and Samuel says, God does not look at the appearance. He does not look at the outside. But God looks at the heart of man. Well, I want you to know, as intimidating as that might be to most of us, I'm incredibly thankful for that. Because Jesus has said, you know, you're a pretty good church. And honestly, in a lot of ways, many churches in America, including College Heights, look pretty good on the outside. Matter of fact, sometimes when I'm around a bunch of other pastors, I don't necessarily tell them all that's going on at College Heights because I get around little, you know, pastors that pastor little churches, and man, they're working as hard as they can work, and their church is going as hard as they can go, and they don't have anything compared to the number of ministries we have. And so I don't even try to list off all those ministries because honestly, that's not what defines us anyway, right? What defines us is a relationship with Jesus Christ or a lack thereof. And Jesus said, yep, you guys at Ephesus are hardworking, you're overcoming, you've stood for truth, but I have this against you, that you've left your first love. Now, I've never read this passage of Scripture where, where the, the depth of me does not want to hear that. I mean, there's just a spot in my life that is just terrified at the thought that I could be looking pretty good on the outside and our church could be looking pretty good on the outside and yet the Savior could say to me or say to our church, You've still left me. You've left your first love, which literally means you love something or someone more than me. It's all that means. There was a day when you had a relationship with me where I was the first love of your life. I was the first thing you thought of in the morning. I was the last thing you thought of at night. I was the one that you followed throughout the day. I was the one that you depended on. I was the one that you worshipped. I was the one that you loved and supported. I was the one for you. I was your joy. I was your fullness. Man, I was the one. There was that day. But you've left that. And you've moved on to something else that's not me. And your works, your works betray you. Your works betray you. Because your works try to convince you that I'm still your first love, but I'm not. Your faithfulness betrays you. Because they would claim, your faithfulness would claim that I'm your first love, but I'm not. 
your whole church to the outward naked eye looks like it's a good church. But it's not. Because I'm not your love. And then he says, Repent therefore and do the deeds you did at first or else I'm coming to you and I will remove your lampstand. Now, here's the deal. I mean, Jesus, Jesus is not just being harsh. And He's not being what we would deem others to be as judgmental. You know, you don't really know, so don't judge me. Don't you love that line? Don't judge me. Listen, there's only one that has the right to judge you. That's the Savior that wrote this letter to you and me. And when He says, you have left your first love, He's not saying that just so He can make you feel bad. He is saying that so you'll come back to Him. Which is incredible grace, by the way. So, how do you know if you left your first love? I mean, honestly, as I read this passage of Scripture, I promise you, some of you have already said this. Oh, I didn't leave my first love. I'm okay. He's not talking about me today. I hope I'm not talking about any of you. I hope it's God talking to you, and I hope you're listening. Because it's easier than you think to leave your first love. Because apparently the Ephesians, who would have thought of themselves as fairly faithful, didn't know they'd left their first love. Is that right? They didn't know they'd left their first love or Jesus wouldn't have had to tell them. So don't be sitting here thinking you didn't leave your first love because I believe you could have and you don't even recognize it. At least you won't even admit it. Well, How do you know? Well, it's quite simple, maybe. Do you think maybe they fell in love with their labor rather than loving Jesus? Do you know how many people love to tell others about how much they do? I've actually sat and listened to people say to me, I don't think there's anybody else in the church doing anything because apparently I'm doing everything. You know, that's never true. Ever. Ever, ever. Never. But you know, that becomes maybe their first love of showing others how much they're doing. You think it's possible that they fell in love with their perseverance? The simple fact that they could endure whatever trials? And so the perseverance and the endurance became their first love? Oh, you better believe it. You know anybody with a martyr complex? Like they're the ones that suffer more than anybody else? Oh, I know plenty of people like that. Oh, woe is me. I'm always suffering. I'm always struggling. But I'm overcoming. Oh, <laughs> pat him on the back and kick him out of my office you guys get mad at me for saying that but good grief you're the only sufferer what about those people dying in the world today you're the only sufferer I don't think so maybe they were the ones that had left their first love for standing for truth and you know there's a fine line between standing for truth for the right motives, which is to honor Jesus Christ, or standing for truth so that you can prove you know something. I told my class Wednesday night, I said, ministry is not about sharing what you know. 
That's not the motive for ministry. The motive for ministry is to share the truth so that people can draw close to Jesus Christ and be set free from their sins and those things that enslave them. Not so you can prove what you know. But there are those that would only minister to prove what they know. And that's not ministry. There's other ways to leave your first love. I mean, there's two really big ways that we practice every day at some level. Humanism is one. Humanism is where we make man the center of all things. Where man becomes the end-all of end-alls. Literally, where man becomes his own God. Humanism. And we practice humanism by saying to God, you know what, I know what's best in my life, so I'm going to follow my plan. That's part of humanism. Humanism is when we say to God, you know what, I can comprehend so many things that when you ask me to go beyond my comprehension, I've got to say no, God, because I'm smarter than you are. So I can't go that far. That's humanism. Within humanism is what I call practicality. Practicality. Where if it's not practical, we can't do it. You ever heard that before? Practicality says, well, God wants us to start this new ministry. And so we look at our budget and we go, oh, there's no money there. So let's be practical. We can't do the new ministry. You ever heard that? Mm Mm-hmm. Yes, you have. (laughs) Too many, many, many times. And honestly, humanism says we love us more than God. Practicality says we know our, love our knowledge better than God. And really all it says is that we don't love Jesus. Because when you love Jesus Christ above all else, it doesn't matter what He asks of you. It doesn't matter what He demands of you. It doesn't matter if He asks you to die for Him. It doesn't matter. Because when you love Jesus Christ... Above all else, all you care about is Him and serving Him and blessing Him and living for Him. And honestly, there's an incredible joy about that. Do you remember when you were first saved when He really was just the joy of your life and you couldn't believe that He would forgive you? And you said to Him, Lord, whatever you want, you can have of me. Whatever you want, I don't care where you take me. I don't care what you demand of me, Lord. I'll change jobs. I'll give up my money. I'll do whatever you want, Lord, because I love you. Do you remember that? You see, part of the problem is, is I'm convinced, regardless of what anybody says, that so many people claim to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, but they don't. Because they never knew what it was to have Him as their first love in the first place. They never had Him in a love relationship. They never really cared for Him. All they wanted was a ticket out of hell. A ticket into heaven. So, oh yeah, I'll be a believer. Yeah, right. Just get me out of hell, Lord. Get me out of judgment, Lord. I'll pretend my way through. Listen, that's not a relationship with God. A relationship with God is when you love Him through His Son above all else. And I mean all else. Above your wife. And above your child. Above your job. And above your money. Above your pleasure. And above your time, when you love God above all else, then He's your first love. First love. And honestly, the Scripture says, seek first God's kingdom 
and His righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you. When you love Jesus Christ above your wife, He gives you a love for your wife that you can't possibly have without Him first. When you love Jesus Christ above your children, He gives you a love for your children that you won't have. Because honestly, if you're not loving Jesus first, you're loving yourself first. Don't think that you're not. If you're not loving Jesus Christ first, you are loving you first. And if you think you can live a selfish life and bless the people in your life, you're mistaken. Man, this call by Christ to repent and do the deeds you did at first is a call back to life. It's a call back to joy. It's a call back to peace. It's a call back to fulfillment. It's a call back to God. And you need Him. And I need Him. And He says, man, if you don't come, if you don't repent, if you don't return, I'm going to come to you, church, and I'm going to remove your lampstand. The lampstand was what the light sat on. And a church without light, can you imagine what a church without light is like? A church without light is the worst possible force in the world because the church is supposed to contain the light of Jesus Christ. And as we shine that light into this world, then lost people can come to know Jesus and be saved. But if our light is gone, if our Christ is gone, if our influence is gone, then whatever we're sharing will be far too destructive to describe. It won't be Jesus. It won't be life-giving. It'll be miserable. And guess what? That applies to you and I as individuals. Man, if God's already speaking to you, I mean, and I know He is, because it's not about my speaking, it's about God speaking. Some of you, God's already said, you are the ones that have left your first love. And if you've rejected that for long enough, then I already know the condition of your heart. Man, you take the light... And the darkness begins to invade. And it begins to rob from you your joy. It begins to rob from you your hope. It begins to rob from you your security. It begins to rob from you the things that make for life. And you're an empty person. You are. There's no other way to be. If the light of Christ has gone from your life, then what do you have left but yourself? And you'll find out quickly that you're not enough. So Jesus says, repent and do the deed you did at first, which is love me. Love me, love me. And then he says, he tells them in verse 6, yeah, I know that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. That's great. But he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Jesus is saying to them, look, I'm calling you to overcome your lack of love for me and to overcome your love for the world so that you will love me. That's what he's talking about. Overcome. And those that overcome, I'll give them the right to eat of the tree of life, eternal life, in the paradise of God. Do you know what this says in very much way of implication? That if if you don't love Jesus Christ and you don't overcome that temptation to love something else, then you are quite possibly in danger of not eating off the tree of life. 
See, those that know Jesus Christ will overcome. He will make them overcome. But don't you think for a minute that you can live this haphazard, half-hearted, half-committed life to Jesus Christ and still find assurance of your hope eternal? Listen, your haphazard life might be the light that God is using to show you that you really don't know Him as your Lord and Savior. Don't take for granted what God's saying to you. Have you truly been saved? I'm not asking you if you're a church member. I'm not asking you if you've been baptized. I'm asking you if you've truly been saved. Because only those that are saved will overcome. And only those who overcome will be granted the privilege to eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God. Only those who overcome. You don't get to play games with God. Don't you remember what I said? He knows you. He knows your deeds. He knows your heart. He knows whether you're saved and He knows whether you're not. He knows whether you're living for Him. He knows whether you're a phony. He knows. You're not going to fool Him. And honestly, if you're a believer and you're not living for Him, if He's not your first love, then the call for Jesus today is to return to Him. And honestly, that's a gift. Praise God He gives us the chance to come back. But if you're here this morning and you've just been playing with God, as if you can fool Him, as if you can somehow manipulate your way into His graces, if somehow you can sustain your life apart from Jesus Christ, know now that you aren't the one that determines judgment. You aren't the one that determines what will happen to you when you die. You're not in control. Jesus Christ is, and He loves you. And if you put your faith in Him, He will forgive you. He'll wash all of your sins away. He'll make you clean. He'll make you His child. He'll give you everlasting life. And through His power, you'll overcome. And you'll love Him for the rest of your life. That's His promise. But you've got to turn to Jesus. Listen, the title of my message is Everything But the Best. Everything But the Best. Are you living for everything but the best? Because if you're living for anything but Jesus, you are living for everything but the best. Why not turn to Him? Why not make Him your first love? Let's pray together. Father, I love You and thank You for Your Word. And I ask, Lord God, that You would bless this Word.